The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Adam Crafton is with us in Vienna. Coming up, we'll hear about Manchester United's recruitment plans for the summer with Laurie Whitwell. Our Italian football writer, James Horncastle, uh, will join us from Portugal, where he was meant to be covering Italy in the World Cup player final. And Liam Toomey will join us to discuss the contenders shortlisted to become owners of Chelsea. Let's start with Manchester United, then Laurie Whitwell covers the club for The Athletic and joins us now. So on their transfer targets then this summer, a, a striker is top of their list, is that right? Well, it's on their list, it's a priority on the list, I would say. Right. The two midfielders that have been described to me, I would say personally, are perhaps a more pressing need, just because it's been an area of the pitch that hasn't properly been addressed for quite a while, but the striker thing is a, a live issue because, you know, um, Edison Cavani is going to go, Mason Greenwood's unavailable, um, you had Cristiano Ronaldo this season, it does look like he's going to stay on for another season, but um, he's going to be turning 38 during the season. Anthony Marshall's form has dropped off, he's on loan at Sevilla, um, Marcus Rashford, there's doubts about him as well. So, you know, the, the idea that United are okay in the forwards area, which looked like it was the case last summer, has kind of dissipated. So one striker and two midfielders. I mean, is that is that financially viable? Quite possibly not. I mean, we've seen previously in transfer windows that Manchester United have gone in with intentions to get a few players in. I mean, last summer was actually probably one of the more, more productive ones for them. Um, you know, Edward Wood kind of privately says in the past that it's been difficult to get more than three transfers in um, and they managed to get sort of three you know pretty big names in um, in areas that I think everyone would agree they, they probably needed to even though you might disagree with the the actual personalities um, but yeah I mean clearly the finances involved will be an issue um, they are still talking you know internally about the effects of the pandemic so you know time will tell on, on whether they can actually complete those three moves. So as far as the striker is concerned have they started interviewing candidates <laughs> um it would be fascinating wouldn't it if they actually interviewed players rather than just sort of went and tried to sign them wouldn't it come on can you can you tell us why you'd be a perfect fit for our squad <laughs> totally flip the transfer market on its head <laughs> um they have one main target do they well yeah i mean the harry kane thing has been um you know kind of a, a player that they they've looked at previously um that is somebody that I think they would like to have joined the club um I mean I can sense Tottenham fans eyeballs rolling yet, yet again another summer of kind of speculation about their sort of main centre forward a guy who's clearly you know leads the club for in a number of ways but yeah there's an idea that he's got two years left on his contract in the summer therefore you know Tottenham's position in terms of keeping him might be a little bit softened than it was last summer where Daniel Levy dug his heels in and just wouldn't countenance really in the end Manchester City's attempts to sign him but you yeah United he's clearly in that top tier of striker that United would want and could handle the club you'd think in terms of the stature of it commercially it'd be a good move I think from United's point of view which is always you know perhaps a slightly uh, cynical way to view things but is nonetheless a reality I suppose the only question is his age, you know, 28, turning 29, for the amount of money that Tottenham would demand, if they even countenance selling him, it, it would be a lot of money. But at the same time, you know, Kane has said he wants to leave the club and would he find, uh, you know, Manchester United appealing? I know that they're not in the Champions League necessarily if, if Arsenal get there, but 
would he think that he's got a better chance of actually making it back into the Champions League at United rather than Spurs? Adam, from what you, you hear from agents and stuff at the moment, are United a tough sell? Yes and no. No in the sense that it's United and they're always happy to pay lots of money um, and that there's a big name associated with it and they're going to have a new manager, so it's all a bit exciting. But I think there's also a general weariness, you know, that supporters feel, but also the general football world feels. I mean, I've just been out here at the European Clubs Association for a few days speaking to lots of different directors across Europe and, mo- and, and most of them have ideas about how to fix Manchester United. Um, <laughs> and you sort of raise the name Manchester United here and, you know, people either sort of roll their eyes or chuckle. And, and that's kind of, I think that's kind of where it's at. And if you are Harry Kane at, what, 29 going to 30, Man United are at the start of another project now. I don't really understand how they'd how he'd be any closer to winning the Premier League by going to Manchester United than he would be with Antonio Conte at Tottenham. Laurie, you know, sources are saying that Mendes is is approaching centre forwards in Europe about switching to Tottenham. You look at you look at some of the names that men that are being linked to Tottenham and you actually kind of think well if United are at the start of a project they might be better off looking at them yeah I mean that's the interesting aspect to to this story in terms of why I feel it was relevant to report on it you know in terms of just linking came with United it's it's not a new thing really but this aspect that George Mendes is perhaps looking at replacements for Harry Kane should he go Um, now he's got a good relationship with Tottenham and um, you might think that an agent that is what they're bound to do in their job, you know, um, look for moves that could happen. Um, but I agree with you that, you know, you look at Darwin Nunes, for example, at Benfica, and that's somebody that, you know, uh, Spurs have been linked with, Arsenal have been linked with him. Could United go and sign him? You know, he's, he's early 20s, he's had a really good season with them, he's performing in the Champions League, he's got that kind of high energy style. So would he actually be a better fit for Manchester United than somebody at the uh, top end of their, um, the age bracket? So, you know, wouldn't rule something like that out. You know, it's not, you know, a foregone conclusion that United absolutely go for Kane um, and, and it would be perhaps an interesting development if they did go for Nunes although having said that you know my sister's fellow's a Benfica fan and he tells me that um, Nunes has had a really good season but it's been one season so you know it's it not perhaps the absolute guarantee that it might appear That's the kind of um, kind of important sources <laughs> that we rely on here, here on The Athletic Laurie's <laughs> sister's fella uh, we'll have more from him over the course <laughs> over the course of the summer uh, as more Benfica players are targeted uh, by by the Premier League. When you talk about two midfielders, are there two specific midfielders or have you just been told they want two midfielders? Yeah, this was the list. I mean, it also included a right winger, which, I mean, you can, again, sort of scrunch your face up and (laughs) be be quizzical over given they signed Jadon Sancho last summer. But, um, you know, I guess the proof is in the pudding as to whether they actually go and and do that. But no, the, the kind of way it was described to me was, defensive star midfielder and an attacking star midfielder so I guess Paul Pogba you think if he's off then you know that that would replace the uh, creative midfielder and then clearly they've they've needed a a kind of defensive one ever since they you know got Nemanja Matic really and and, and he's at the end of of his spectrum but I mean we know the names I suppose that they've been looking at Declan Rice um, perhaps others I mean Calvin Phillips would be an interesting one if he could be persuaded from Leeds again maybe that's a, a foolish kind of idea they've got no chance of doing that have they? They've got no chance of... Sure, I mean, it's different to the Ferdinand one, isn't it? Because Calvin Phillips is a Leeds lad, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, but there's there's other names. I mean, there's probably you know, players on the continent that I think United should be looking at. Um, but no, it wasn't described to me as like they've got two absolutely 
guaranteed midfielders that they want to go and get. It was just more the profile. Out of interest, Adam, where you are then in Aus- in Vienna at the European Club Association uh, General Assembly, all these people who have an idea on what to do at United all roll their eyes or laugh. Is there one main theme that runs through what they say? No, lots of different things. I think a lot of them look at it now and it's a bit like, you know, if you talk to 10 different fans, they'll all have 10 different things they want to complain about. I think what, what's great about it from United's perspective, everyone still wants to talk about Manchester United. And, you know, from United's commercial perspective, that, that's, a, that's, that's a big strength. I do think, you know, everyone's waiting a little bit for the clarity over the manager. And I think that will, that will ultimately define what they're able to do in terms of recruitment, what they're able to do in terms of style of play, and ultimately how successful they're going to be. I spoke to a few people yesterday who just said, you know, actually, I think the structure at the club is now a little bit underrated in terms of Richard Arnold being a bit more specific on the commercial side. And then you've also got uh, John Murtagh in a, a more sort of defined football director, sporting director style role now as well. So there is a sense that they're getting there in terms of the structures, but that the head coach is so integral and everyone kind of needs clarity in order to, to move forward. With some of these people that you're speaking to, Adam, are they, do any of them think they could do a job at Manchester United? You know, is that an idea that is floating around? You know, they've obviously got ways that they think the club should be fixed or what the, who they should be signing, but would, do you think, do you get a sense that any of them would fancy, you know, coming and working for United? Is that still an appeal for them? No, the appeal of working for Manchester United will never go away because of the size of the club and the history. I, th- I think partly people are waiting what happens with the manager. The other thing is when you when you hear about all these different bidders for Chelsea and what they plan to do with land around the stadium and all that kind of thing. There's been a lot of some people here talking about you know, things Manchester United could have done with the land around their stadium, how they could have built that, I suppose, fan experience over the past 15 years. I, I think that's the kind of thing that would have been dismissed and mocked a bit at the start you know if Americans came over and started redeveloping sort of entertainment venues and that kind of thing but now after 15 years of basically negligence around the stadium people are looking at that and thinking that actually just they've just missed that opportunity so there's huge potential for what United are able to do it's just very little sign that they're about to go and do it. Do either of you know how they are able to interview managers who are already in jobs with Ajax, it's a bit more straightforward, isn't it? Because I think they know that their players, their managers, are um, on a path to further employment. You know, it's not like this is the final destination for them. So I think they're mature enough and open-minded enough to go. Well, listen, if you can have an interview with him, you know, go and see what they say. You know, we'll have a chat with you. We can kind of come to a grown-up conclusion. Um, clearly, with other clubs, you know, Mauricio Pochettino at PSG, it's probably a bit more difficult. You know, it's a game of brinksmanship, perhaps in that situation. Do they really want to keep him beyond this season? Um, do, does he want to leave? You know, I, I don't know exactly the kind of conversations that are going on behind the scenes, but I'd be, um, you know, well, yeah, I'd be surprised if there haven't been at least uh, talks fire intermediaries, shall we say. Laurie, thank you. So let's just touch, Adam, on what you've been covering in Vienna, the European Clubs Association and uh, their General Assembly. Uh, And a proposal has been put forward for this new Champions League qualification model. So they are going with the Swiss model, aren't they, first of all, which means all the teams in the same league? Yeah, essentially. So this was all agreed before the Super League and it was signed off at the final... UEFA meeting, ECA meeting before the Super League idea came came along, and then it's kind of just been forgotten about because everyone's 
kind of painted UEFA as the saviors of football and it's all going to be a lot more fair and equitable and all that kind of thing. And now we're at the stage where these are the reforms to the 2020 to start in 2024. So these will be the changes. So the Champions League, they call it the Swiss model. It will all be sort of in one table, changes to the format. The big teams will play each other a bit more often. Not everyone will play each other. It's all a bit complicated. But the, the, cut, the, the thrust of yesterday was a presentation by Giorgio Marchetti from UEFA explaining to the, the member clubs at the ECA. And the ECA is like a lobbying organization of, of the clubs who compete in European football. So the idea is, you know, the clubs want more power, more money, more revenue, all that kind of thing. And the ECA gives them a voice against UEFA and increasingly they sort of work hand in hand. The debate last year was about whether, because the, the number of places going from 32 to 36 in the, in the group, group stage of the Champions League, so there's four extra places, and one of those will go to kind of what you would call sort of historical champions, champions pathway, clubs that would maybe normally be in the qualification phase of it. So sort of, I don't know, Danish champion, Danish, Scottish, those kind of leagues that are maybe a little bit underrepresented at times in the Champions League group stage. Then there's another place which will go to the fifth biggest league, according to UEFA coefficients. So at the moment, that's France. But Portugal are hot on their heels. So Benfica in the Champions League quarterfinal this season. I think Sporting Lisbon are still in either Europa or the Conference League. So there's a chance that by 2024, that's actually Portugal rather than France getting an extra place. Then you have these two places which are being called sort of the, the coefficient places. And these are partially based on teams' historical performance in the Champions League. So, and, and the, the historical element is the past, the previous five seasons. So, for example, you get to a stage 2024 where Manchester United and Barcelona both finish outside of the top four in their respective domestic leagues. Therefore, as the two highest clubs across Europe in terms of coefficients, they would go in to the Champions League automatically. The catch is they have to finish in the first place outside of the usual qualification place. So you have to finish fifth. Um, so there's no one. The previous controversy was the idea that if West Ham finished fifth and Manchester United finished eighth, Manchester United could still claim that place. That's been removed from the proposal. So you would have to get the first place outside the qualification places. There is a situation where you can have two more Premier League clubs in, but again, it has to be that they finish fifth and sixth. So if it was Manchester United and Spurs, Manchester United and Arsenal, uh, and we sort of, we did a bit of a workout of how it would have been over the last five years or so in this format. And it doesn't always reward the Premier League clubs, but I think in three of the five years, it would have seen us have probably two more Premier League clubs in there. So there's a debate about whether you know that's fair and whether that is sporting merit and whether it rewards these clubs who are having poor seasons. Yeah, um, because... If, if for the first couple of years two more Premier League sides go in based on historic performances, then their historic performances are still likely to be ahead of everybody else's then because they're they're qualifying more often for for this tournament. Absolutely. When the Super League collapsed, I remember there were some stories saying, "Oh, UEFA is going to punish the Premier League Big Six by removing these two poss- these two possible places." And the reality is that was never likely to happen because. 
UEFA quite like this idea. UEFA quite like this idea because it's far easier to sell broadcast packages, commercial packages, when the probability of having Manchester United and Liverpool and Arsenal it, it has a few more safeguards into their tournament. So this idea where we had UEFA on the one side as the good guys and Super League as the bad guys, you know, I think everyone, you know, people can still dislike the Super League, but it's also in UEFA's commercial interest as well. That the one interesting aspect to it, which I quite like, is if you do have a situation where, because it, it won't be every year that, you know, you've got two historically successful Premier League clubs, fifth and sixth. And actually, Adam, that's what I was going to ask. If West Ham finish fifth and Real Betis finish fifth and Sampdoria finish fifth and Nantes finish fifth and whoever in, I don't know, um, Nuremberg finish fifth, I hope all of those clubs don't have historical Champions League records. And if they do, I apologise to the hipsters. But if they all finish fifth, what happens? So it will again be based on coefficients it will be who has got the highest coefficient out of those um, out of those five clubs. And right. But what's quite fun about it is not only as a West Ham fan or Manchester United fan, would you be checking the scores of, you know, can Watford do me a favour against West Ham this weekend? You might also need to be checking, will Celta Vigo do me a favour against Villarreal this weekend? Will, yeah. uh, I don't know, Hoffenheim do me a favour against, against Nuremberg? So there is a, a bit of a theory that this could help actually drive some interest in international markets in, in, across different leagues at, at the business end of seasons, which I quite like. Some people will just think, oh, whatever, it's another crap idea. But um, I think it's, it's, not, it's not a closed shop. It's not, it's not as dramatic as the Super League, but it is clearly another attempt to safeguard the presence of historically successful clubs into the Champions League. Okay, speaking of uh, football hipsters who know their European football, James Horncastle is with us next. And the beauty of this is that he won't have heard that link. So as we were saying, our Italian football writer, James Horncastle, is with us next. Uh, where are you, James, by the way? It looks amazing. Where are you? I'm in the arts quarter of Porto. Um, uh, I'm in a townhouse, right. which has got these lovely uh, wooden beams. Um, I've just been downstairs for a, uh, a rablanada, which apparently is what the uh, Portuguese have on Christmas Eve. It's like a, I don't know, French toast kind of vanilla kind of thing. So I've already put on maybe right. two kilos. Um, and uh, yeah, off off to the game tonight, which is Italy. Oh no, it's not Italy, Portugal. It's uh, Portugal, Macedonia. So even though, even though North Macedonia knocked Italy out, you you couldn't change your uh, your travel. Why not, Chappers? I mean, ultimately, you know, I mean, San Sebastian's got nothing on Porto. So um, what 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 can I say? And and, and you look. <laughs> I mean, Portugal for for a country this size, this disproportionate amount of you know sort of football information and gossip comes out of uh, of this of this town. So uh, always worthwhile coming anyway. So um, so yeah, and it's it's still it's yeah okay. I'm I'm essentially having to process uh, that at the World Cup in the winter. I will not be covering Italy. So. Uh, who better to start the North Macedonia beat with than against Portugal? So, <laughs> how is it in in Italy? Would you say a few days after what happened to them? 
it's been overblown, I think, the reaction. Uh, I mean, very dramatic, uh, partly because I think a lot of people were already thinking ahead to this game, including myself, uh, against Portugal. Um, and uh, there was a feeling that, you know, whilst uh, it could go wrong, that they were Europe champions. There was a lot of positivity from that. And the first game was was played against North Macedonia, and it was in Palermo. It was at home. Italy had never lost a World Cup qualifier, I don't think, uh, um, at home. Um, it was the first game that they played in front of a full capacity crowd. You know, I mean, even when they were playing in Rome in in, in the group stage of the of, of the European Championships, you know, that was between you know fifty percent, seventy five percent capacity during the European Championship group stage uh, games in, at the Stadio Olimpico. So there was a feeling that they had this twelfth man aspect. There was, there was, I mean, the atmosphere was in, incredible um the anthem singing the they were they were singing the songs of the of 2006 world cup i wouldn't say it all went wrong chapters because ultimately and this has been the theme of the last eight months they've played well they've still played like the italy we saw at the european championships they've just been remarkably unlucky to the point where mancini was at a complete loss to explain it because uh, for example, in, in qualifying, they had these two group stage games against Switzerland, home and away. They drew them both, but Jorginho missed penalties uh, in, in Rome and in Bern. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they created loads of chances against Bulgaria, only scored once and, and drew 1-1. Created loads of chances against North Macedonia, where the goalkeeper literally passes it to Domenico Berardi. He's got maybe 70% of the goal is an open goal, and he just hits a tame shot right back at him and so there was a feeling that it, it should never have come to this but James are we saying then unlucky or careless in the sense that quite a few of the the way you've described a few things was maybe a belief oh it'll be all right in the end we'll be fine in the end and actually the more the more they the careless incidents rack up the more you're not all right yeah and I, I do feel that the the conclusion of this qualifying stage has almost come too soon. It's it's really crept up on Italy um, that okay, wow, this is this has become really important really quickly. And whilst they still were celebrating and had a bit of a hangover from from the Euros, um, all of a sudden they're they're playing for their future at the World Cup, and I think that psychologically um, was was tricky tricky to manage, um, but. Yeah, I mean, there's just been, this is not like 2017 um, chapters where, you know, it was it was kind of seen as the the apocalypse, um, where everything with Italian football um, was was wrong. Um, you know, as, as Mancini has said, this was, this has been three years in the making where they went unbeaten in, in a record number of games. I think the North Macedonia defeat was only their second in 41 games. They've been on their record-breaking and winning streak. Um, they've, they've, they've put together a system and a style which is very in step with, with modern football. You know, a lot of people at the beginning of the Euros were surprised that Italy were playing in the way that they did. So there's been a, there's been a, a lot of good work done. Um, so it's almost... But, but, in the immediate aftermath, it's it's not the apocalypse. It's it feels like the eclipse. In, in that, all of that good work is kind of being overlooked, and it's like okay, Mancini should resign, which he's not going to. 
the entire Italian football system needs reforming, which it kind of already has been undergoing since they uh, fell out of the group stages in the 2010 World Cup. Yeah, there are still systemic flaws within with the Italian Italian football system, but they're not. Some of them are not unique to Italy. You know, in terms of like, for example, the foreign player to to, to Italian player ratio, it's not too dissimilar to what we see in the Premier League. Um, the same at youth level. James, is there any reevaluation in Italy of, I suppose, how how they regard the team that won the tournament last summer? In terms of, you know, there's a few people here in England now saying, well, did England just miss the absolute chance of a lifetime against a team that you know was good but not not brilliant? Um, is that being reflected in Italy, or is there still a sense of that team were heroes and icons, or wh- wh- where are they at with 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 that team? Well, I think there's a, certainly a sense that uh, that achievement can never be taken away from them, but that they did exceed expectations. Uh, and uh, you have, for example, Arrigo Sacchi, who you know always likes to stare down from his ivory tower on 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 whatever is going on in Italian football, saying you know, that is an exception. Um, particularly when you look at the trend in the Italian club game, you know that Serie A hasn't produced a Champions League winner since 2010. Um, it hasn't produced a Europa League winner since the the change of format in that competition. You have to go all the way back to to Parma in what, 99. I, I I personally think that um, uh, that team showed two sides to it in that competition which kind of still make it a perfectly valid and worthy winner of that competition you know they 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 played in step with the modern game and they showed them they showed that they also have the kind of ability to dig in and show that resilience that classic italian sides have that's that's still baked into their dna um from the kind of final 10 minutes of the belgium game to the to the semi-finals and the final beyond but yeah, certainly. I think it's it's led to a, if not a, a demand to kind of rip it up and throw it throw it in the bin. A kind of right. There still needs to be a profound reflection on the state of the Italian game. Just as in two thousand and six, winning the World Cup uh, papered over cracks. Yeah, you know, the win the win last summer did as well, and that those cracks remain. But I mean, the, 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 as I go back to that point about the eclipse. Italy has good young players coming through. It's not like it's not like in 2010 where Marcello Lippi stayed loyal to you know the, the 2006 group. Even now there is there is a succession of players coming through. Donnarumma is very young. Bastoni's uh, very young. Zaniola, Sandro Tonali, um, Gianluca Scamacca, all, all all of these players there, which kind of do already kind of point to a uh, a good future. Um, for Italy, um, maybe not, maybe not a future where they, they produce a Totti or Del Piero. I mean, that again, it, it keeps coming back to that. Where are the Tottis and Del Pieros? Where are the Christian Vieris? But, but, the, but the reality is, is those, those, those players, you know, in some respects, are once in a generation players. After the heat of the moment has gone, it is now a kind of reflection on: Can you get the club game and 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 the national team federation aligned? But as we see, even in England, that's a problem. <laughs> Boy, is it ever? Is it ever? James, we'll, we'll let you go and enjoy the uh, the Portuguese sunshine. That's our North Macedonian correspondent, uh, James Horncastle. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Liam Toomey covers Chelsea for The Athletic and joins us now. So we're down to a shortlist of four, Liam. Yep, we have our final four in the running to own Chelsea. We have the, the consortium led by Todd Bowley, who've kind of been quite public um, in terms of the coverage of them since the very start of this process. Hans-Jörg Weiss was the first person to be linked with Chelsea. And of course, we have the Ricketts family in partnership with Ken Griffin, um, a bid that has encountered a lot of resistance from Chelsea fans, but they're still in the frame. Um, We have the bid fronted by Sir Martin Broughton, but absolutely powered by the investment of Josh Harris and and David Blitzer, who, of course, are minority investors at Crystal Palace. And the fourth contender is Stephen Pagliuca, um, someone that we heard pretty much nothing about uh, until very, very late in this initial bid process. He's a part owner of the Boston Celtics, very successful NBA team and uh, the majority owner only as of last month of Atalanta in Serie A. Um, So those are the four big contenders. There's still a lot we don't know in terms of who's actually bid the most uh, and what some of the details of their bids entail. Um, But I think they are understanding our reporting that's been led by the excellent Matt Slater um, is that they will all get an opportunity to submit revised sort of final bids to the rain group. And um, the general timeline for this is that rain are hoping to have a preferred bidder to take to the UK government by the end of April. And as Matt has, has said many times during this process, it, it's not just the money. There are, there are, there are so many other things to consider here as well. Yeah, it's a really unusual auction. I mean, it's an unusual takeover process anyway, because usually we wouldn't hear about any of this stuff until the deal's done. But yeah, they're they're kind of only bidding against each other and they're bidding against each other in the knowledge that the highest bid won't necessarily win because there are all these other factors that that Rain have been, you know, stressing. Certainly investment in the stadium, that's a big, big one. A statement of intent to invest in the team. There's been talk of, you know, all of the all of the bidders being required to pledge one billion pounds of investment, future investment in the team. So there's there, there's there's a lot here, and then there's also the the spectre of you know fan representation and Chelsea supporters trust and and Chelsea pitch owners have been very active and very public in pushing forward their interests because they see this I think as quite a unique opportunity. Um, to exert some influence on the next era of Chelsea. So much focus on the ownership, but also going forward, it will be interesting to see what happens to the executive as well here, won't it, Liam? I know Danny Taylor's written a a great profile piece uh, on Marina Granaskaya on the Athletic. Now, she's done a lot of good work for Chelsea, an awful lot of good work. If she goes, then that is a big shift for the club as well. So there are there are so many different levels to this. It's not simply an ownership change. No, there are so many ripple effects from that. And one of the key ones is what happens to the football structure of the club. You know, but Marina Granovskaya's links to Roman Abramovich go back far beyond Chelsea. She was his personal assistant at Sibneft 25 years ago. So that's why I think the, you know, the, the thinking at the moment is that she would go with him once any sale is completed. But we don't know that because 
Granovskaya is every bit as private <laughs> as Abramovich is. She's never given an interview. We we scarcely ever have an insight into what she's thinking. Um, but I would I would suspect that for any new owner, um, particularly the time the timing of of this ownership change, I think any US owner would would sort of favour stability at this point. You're heading into quite a crucial summer. You're lucky enough to already have in the various different departments, one of the best men's head coaches in the world, Thomas Tuchel, one of the best women's head coaches in the world, Emma Hayes, and one of the best academy directors in Neil Bath. Um, so you don't have to change anything on that front. And Marina Granovskaya was given an award at the Golden Boy Awards last year for best director in Europe. So Chelsea seem to have kind of best in class in all these different arenas. And, and Petr Cech, I think, is growing into his role as technical and performance advisor. So how feasible it is for Chelsea to keep Granovskaya in particular, nobody really knows at this point. Uh, and I don't think we will until any new owners actually sit down with her. Um, but it, it it would be a lot to replace. And, you know, you're talking about the senior decision maker at the club, the one who's run the football operations day to day for for the best part of a decade now. So it would be a massive shift. Thank you, Liam. Thanks. And you can read plenty more on that story across The Athletic. And right now you can subscribe to The Athletic for just a pound a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.